From Senator Tammy Baldwin to Governor Scott Walker, candidates on both sides of the aisle are talking about addiction on the campaign trail in a way that they haven't before. I'm Jesse Opoyan, the Cap Times political reporter, and this is Wedge Issues, a podcast about the 2018 elections in Wisconsin. I recently wrote a cover story about the way candidates are addressing addiction issues while trying not to politicize them. And for that story, I talked with Senator Baldwin about her own upbringing with a mother who struggled with addiction and mental health issues. Join me for a bonus episode of Wedge Issues where I will play you our conversation in its entirety. The two of us sat down in a coffee shop for about half an hour with her campaign spokesman. Uh, He makes a brief appearance in here. Uh, It's a little loud with coffee shop noises, but if you read the story and want to hear more about Tammy Baldwin's portion of it, take a listen. You've been so private about your personal life for a very long time. Why did you decide that that this was the right moment to make yourself vulnerable in terms of sharing your mother's story? Well, a couple of different reasons um, that just sort of came together. Uh, One was um, I lost my mother last year. And throughout her life, so just so you know about her, she she was trained as a social worker used to actually do child welfare and foster care, like checking in on foster parents and supporting them here in Dade County when she was in her early 20s. And, but there was always an element of, of shame related to the fact that she wasn't able to raise me. Um, and uh, we talked about that. I remember actually when I was running for Senate, Um, It sort of, she was afraid that it would become a story all over again because every time I sort of ran for, you know, somebody would ask, why didn't you? Um, And uh, so when she passed away, I, I, that guard about protecting, jealously protecting her privacy was let down and in fact, um, her memorial service, I gave a eulogy. I actually had invited several people who knew her in different decades of her life to speak. And almost every one of them told these great, funny stories, which are so true to my mother, but also acknowledged, you know, she had had her burdens, or we saw some of the best of times and some of the worst of times. And and so I, I realized other people who knew her well knew her in both ways like like I did. Um, and so that seemed like the beginning of I mean, the, the eulogy I wrote. How do I, oh, wow. I mean, I can't talk about my mother without acknowledging that it was a huge part of our difficult relationship, but, you know, also celebrating the wonderful things about her. So it's like the first time I wrote about it and then to, it was a small memorial, but, you know, shared with others. Um, and then it was sort of joined with, um, you know, obviously this isn't a crisis, an epidemic that um, is impacting our state, our country. And I've been doing a lot of policy work on it as well as a lot of listening. So traveling the state, posting roundtables. And now I'm at the point where I'm often returning to communities I was in two years ago to say, you know, what's changed, what's better, what's worse. So that's. That, you know, for part of it also. Um, but between the roundtables I had in Wisconsin and the hearings we have in the health committee, health panel uh, in D.C., 
the most powerful aspect of those is people sharing their stories. And there was a hearing in D.C. with affected family members and somebody sort of told their story and then made a specific point about how it's important that people fight the stigma and speak out about this because that's the only way we're going to change. Um, and at that very hearing, um, when it came, you know, we each get a chance to ask questions. And, and I said, before I do, um, you know, I, I thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for inviting us to tell ours, everyone to tell ours. And I said, I'm going to tell you mine. And that was kind of opening the door. And then... Um, you got into it that day thinking you were going to do that? Um, I had read the testimony or at least a summary of the testimony of all the witnesses and they were gripping. Um, I hadn't heard the line that said, you know, I want others to, but still. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the combination of things that were going on. Was it difficult in the years before this um, when you were talking with someone, going through this experience, thinking, gee, I wish I could share my own story with you. Yeah. Um, well, often if it was one-on-one or small group, I would a- absolutely say that, um, you know, if I had a small group of folks lobbying for resources for treatment in one of our conference rooms, and they'd say, you know, tell their stories, and sort of, you know, from that perspective of not expecting most elected officials to get it in a and to say, you know, I do have a family member who, or a loved one, or something like that. And then, um, you know, individually, like if you were telling me your story um, two or three years ago, and I might say, I just want you to know that, you know, there's a reason why my grandparents raised me, or, you know, something like that. But, um, yeah, uh, but I I was conscious about sort of, um, of my mother's just really, her emotions around it was just so difficult for her. As you said, um, this epidemic has gotten worse, but your mother was dealing with this a very long time ago. I guess as, as you talk to people about this, well, how have you seen the issue of addiction change uh, over the time that you've been personally aware of it? So the similarity that I see is that this was an issue that um, my mother dealt with only through the medical establishment. So I, I have no idea. I'm sure that we train doctors more in pharmacology today than we did back then. There's far more pharmaceutical products today than there were in the 60s when this started for my mother. Um, but I'm sure as she saw different doctors, she, she had multiple chronic illnesses. And um, as she saw different doctors, um, you know, she was prescribed things, I'm not sure, there was certainly no database, there was no digitization, so no <laughs> database for them to check that this doctor prescribed that and that. And, you know, I, I've never, I've never had any suspicion that she was ever taking illegal drugs. Um, but, in many ways, the behavior of, like, going to the ER and saying, I have a migraine, like, you know, you can't believe, and they get rid of her with um, a bottle of pills, and she could do that, and and sometimes things were, you know, she went through treatment, things would be under control, and then she'd get back, and so the similarity is, unlike 
some of our drug epidemics of the past, that this one really came out of the practice of medicine and failure to either, for my mother's part, for them to know what one another was prescribing or follow through on, you know, monitoring really closely. Today, it's different from the perspective, um, have you ever um, done any reporting on the pain as the fifth vital? Okay, so if you look at drug addiction since the year, say, 2000, just to pick a, I think it, the pain scale came in just before that or whatever, it just goes up. Um, so my mother's way before that, but the similarity of, um, so people started getting addicted, they started doctor shopping, they, then they got the database, um, there were pills diverted out of people's medicine cabinets. I mean, I, my mother didn't, wasn't stealing drugs from other people or anything like that, but, but I see that as the similarity. And, and frankly, opioids aren't the only addictive medicine, so I think she was um, prescribed benzodiazepines for her um, bipolar disorder, and which was, I think, before that, it was just they thought she had depression, and then later on in her life, anyways, those are addictive too, and also contraindicated to be prescribed for somebody who's also taking narcotics. When did you know um, and, and really start to understand that your mother was struggling not just with uh, these physical ailments, her mental illnesses, but with uh, addiction to narcotics? Um, it took a while. I mean, I would say um, early on, I just thought she was sick. And, and you know, it's, I guess really truthful even now knowing is um, because we know that um, addiction is an illness um, that needs to be treated, but, um, you know, I knew that that she was physically incapacitated oftentimes because of physical illnesses, but also, you know, she wasn't like my grandparents, she wasn't like my other um, friends' parents, and um, I thought she was just very ill, and, and I'm talking about, you know, like when I'm four, five, six, seven, um, I certainly always saw the medications, um, but I don't think I really had a consciousness about what addiction was um, until probably close to my preteen years. The first time she went through inpatient treatment for drugs was when I was 15. She had previously had psychiatric hospitalizations and many hospitalizations for surgeries and other physical ailments. How did that affect your relationship? Um, I listened to an interview you did with NPR and you talked about there being some good times and some you know, not so good times. Yeah, um, so you know when she was able to, when, when she wasn't uh, misusing her prescribed medications, um, I just think of her as funny. I, I think about um, you know how young she was when I was born. She was 19, so uh, you know hanging out with her when I was 12. You know she's 31, and um, how old are you? <laughs> 27. Okay, so when I was eight, yeah. she was 27. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
Honestly, it's not. Yeah. 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 Eight. Eight years old. I remember her loving it when. Um, uh, when people would say, is this your younger sister? Yeah. So, oh, how fun, you know. <laughs> no, it's my daughter. Yeah. Um, she, I mean, she she did love that. Oh, sure. Um, sure. But I, there were, I mean, I, I remember um, I, money was always an issue. That's actually not um, unusual with people who are um, addicted, whether, you know, couldn't, couldn't hold on jobs, um, you know, needed help with all sorts of things. So I, it, in some ways I used to say that growing up that she was more like a sister because we were both being raised by the same people, um, but, you know, 19 years apart. Um, but I, I would say it was even more than that, that there was a dependency that um, in some ways, um, well, as a child, I just felt like I, I needed to try to fix this and help her get well and when I couldn't do that I would do things like clean the house or feed the pets or you know whatever it was yeah. um, but then when I grew older there was increasingly she saw me playing that role and so I was like can I borrow some money or um, I can you fix this for me and so um, often I, there were periods of time where my visits were like back to being a kid and trying to clean and fix everything, I'd go, even as an adult, even, you know, up to the last decade where, um, you know, as a U.S. Senator, but I was helping her move from um, a home to assisted living. It was actually a senior, uh, senior condo, and then helping her um, sadly move into a nursing home. Um, and so, yeah, um, she couldn't do those things, yeah. So this is an issue that needs a public policy solution, but also um, is something that people don't want to politicize. So how do you walk the line between talking about this in an ad um, without tying it to partisan politics? I, two things. One is, you know, there's just, there's no role for politicizing this issue. And you know, when I think about uh, the policy side of it, when you're holding yourself out, asking for people's vote, um, you want to say, this is what I'm working on, this is what I've accomplished. But I think it's not at all unusual for people to say, and I'm passionate about this because of X. You may remember in earlier campaigns, um, and certainly this one, I talk about having been a child with a pre-existing health condition when I was in the hospital um, and watching my grandparents worry that they couldn't get insurance for me after that illness. That's, you know, again, that's, it's a story. It's what motivated me to want to be in this, this role of trying to make sure others don't have to go through that. And I don't think it, this is really any different except that it's an epidemic right now, but yeah, and I think of, and you talk about people touting, um, you know, maybe their, their roots in education or roots in the health field or roots in um, manufacturing as a part of why they're coming to this moment in their life, either running for the first time or running for re-election. It's like, I get this. 
And so just for me, this is very close to home. care about this state deeply and these issues are going to be with me for a long time. Us talking about a five-year plan is not helping me. It may be fine for you, but it's not helping me. Now, whether they're from the community, I don't care. Whether they're from space, I don't care. As long as they can provide the best visual experience for Madison. Keep hope alive. Keep hope alive. These are Cap Times Talks, smart conversations about big topics in Madison. Look for Cap Times Talks on iTunes or anywhere else you find podcasts. Your opponents, as they react to this, are going to bring up your office's reaction to the overprescription issues at the Toma VA. How do you square that issue with uh, what this means to you personally and, and, and any efforts that you have uh, taken at the federal level to, to address it? As I just said, there's no room for playing politics with this sort of issue and we have to lean forward into what are we going to do about it um, and and then if it's uh, let's you know then we'll talk about Jason's law and especially the sweeping reforms that it has created that are so important to the safety of our veterans um, I mean, I was so proud to work with the family, but also the VFW and the, um, uh, the American Legion and DAV on putting together something that um, not only affects Toma and Wisconsin, but affects every VA facility and prescriber in the system. Um, and when you look at just some of the impact it's had already, there are um, far more options for treating pain that are non-pharmaceutical now in the VA, um, and all the prescribers have um, gotten um, updated training to the latest guidelines, uh, and they're tracking in real time to make sure that there's not a facility or a prescriber out there who's doing harm. In terms of other things at the policy level, what are you proud of uh, so far? And, and what else would you like to accomplish at the, the federal level? So in terms of the federal government really finally beginning to step up, I think we saw two major things happen in 2016. The passage of CARA, which is the Comprehensive Addiction Reform, uh, Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act. And that was a set of policies that required much more um, more options for helping people who were addicted and some of them were reforms to the justice system and others were focused on the healthcare system but to sort of say this is a health issue and how can we um, you know that we're not going to solve it by uh, imprisoning everybody and so that that was a I think a really important thing. It also, by the way, dealt with uh, mental illness. And I can't stress enough how often illness, mental illness and addiction present together. So, and then that was followed up with what's called the 21st Century Cures Act, which infused the funding into the grant programs, for example, that were set up in CARA. It was a major step forward. Uh, we followed that up uh, with um, even 
greater resources in the omnibus. So we're at about the 4.75 billion level. Now that we're in 2018, a couple of the grant programs that are um, that were created in CARA are coming to an end, and we have to reauthorize them. So um, I could get into some real specifics of what I'm proud of having done, like right now. Um, so it goes through the help committee that I'm on. In my roundtables around the state, where I'm listening and finding what the gaps are still, you know, what they're using resources for, etc. From that feedback, I was able to um, sponsor a change that um, allows tribal governments to directly receive grant funding rather than having it filtered through the state. Um, the epidemic on many of our, our tribal nations' reservations is like worse than maybe surrounding areas. Then, uh, what I've heard in testimony all around the state, I'll go back a couple years back when I started the round tables, you could have looked at a map and said, pointed to the western part of the state and said, this is, um, there's a methamphetamine ep um, epidemic, and then the eastern part of the state, and this is a heroin epidemic. And that's no longer the case. So that's something I've learned just by continuing to have these meetings that medical examiners or especially in the law enforcement will say we're coming across people who have taken a whole mix of drugs or um, have basically got, you know, bought whatever was cheapest and most accessible because so it's neat, you know. And so when we have funding that is just totally specific to the opioid epidemic and we don't give local flexibility to treat people with methamphetamine addiction or um, then we're basically cutting a whole bunch of folks out of treatment options. Um, doesn't mean we shouldn't still continue um, a lot of resources towards the opioid epidemic because on the research side we need to find things that treat pain that don't cause addiction. On the, um, you know, we have these overdose reversal drugs that can bring people back to life, but not if you're overdosing on methamphetamine. Um, and we also have the medication-assisted treatment for opioids that doesn't work for methamphetamine. So you, you don't want to give up on any of that, but you have to, so, so anyways, that's another provision. And then the other one um, is that we're seeing um, around the country and around Wisconsin, um, a lot of um, uh, infectious disease uh, coming from needle use. So hep C um, and HIV AIDS uh, outbreaks. Um, and that's, you know, we were making such progress with both. Um, so we want to make sure that we're able to treat that impact of the epidemic too. Um, Siren Act is um, that's not in the bill. This is one that I joined with a bipartisan group to introduce, but it, um, it gets uh, funds to first responders, and in rural Wisconsin those are volunteers, to train them in use of the naloxone and Narcan um, uh, overdose antidote. Um, and, you know, that's a taxpayer expense. Um, Narcan, uh, drug company that makes it, jacked up the price like so many other prescription drugs and um, so if you want every first responder to have it in their ambulance or squad car or fire truck um, 
you know, we, they need the training. I was just doing a round table, I've done three in the last week and a half, um, in, uh, in one community where they've had two first responder exposures, to, you know, where they've come into a place, 911 call, and the fentanyl, which is such high strength, was present and they needed to use the overdose reversal drug on the officer or the first responder. Well, the, the last question I want to ask you is just how would you like your mother to be remembered? Hmm. Um, funny. <laughs> um, you know, and I think about what she trained to do and what she did spend a good part of her life doing was helping other people, including um, at times she was counseling other people with um, addiction. Um, and I... She wanted to help people. I always say she's, she always describes herself as I'm in the helping professions uh, or profession. And so it's one of the reasons why I think that she would be okay with, um, at this point, her privacy being, you know, um, well, her story being opened up is that she'd know that it was helping people. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of Wedge Issues. Our theme music is Oh, Wisconsin by Loxley. We'll be back to our regular schedule on Friday with a brand new episode, so be sure to tune in. In the meantime, if you have any questions or suggestions, you can reach out to me on Twitter at jessieopie, J-E-S-S-I-E-O-P-I-E, or you can email me at J-O-P-O-I-E-N at madison.com. If you're not subscribed yet, you can do that wherever you find your podcasts. Otherwise, check back at captimes.com. We'll see you Friday. Friday.